and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Now, today I am the one talking, and that probably seems pretty scary, if not an outright cheat, because you come here to listen to other people talk, uh, experts and things. And I just want to preface this, and this is by no means an excuse. I worked my butt off to try and find someone to come in this week and talk about COVID-19 from a variety of angles. I tried to talk about COVID-19 from, uh, you know, just a general social angle, um, its continued effect on people with disabilities, the uh, long COVID, which there have been some, you know, recent studies released about, some kind of concerning studies about the effects on long-term mental health and you know, the brain's physical health, for that matter, coming as a result of long COVID. All this, though, is easier said than done. So I wasn't able to get someone, and it may speak to the fact that these people are still very busy, busier than we might think, or perhaps even that we're kind of all sick of talking about COVID. Even the experts, even the people studying COVID, they're just sick of talking about it. Or maybe more precise to think, maybe they're sick of talking into the void about COVID, because that seems to be where they are. And it got me thinking about all the areas I'm concerned about, all the questions I still have about COVID going forward from where we're sitting here now on March the 15th, 2023, almost exactly three years from when the city locked down and much of Canada locked down and much of the world locked down. It was this time three years ago in 2020 that it hit home. We had, for the first time in 100 years, a global pandemic, and it was going to touch, if not everyone on this planet, nearly everyone, or at the very least, everyone on Earth would know somebody who would be affected by COVID-19. And here we are. Just to give you an idea, Johns Hopkins University uh, in the... United States, one of the preeminent medical schools and one of the preeminent medical research universities in the world, if not the most preeminent, they've stopped collecting around-the-clock data about COVID-19 as of last week, as of March the 10th. They're not updating their dashboard every day, every hour, like they were. And I remember the <laughs> the opening days of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, the, the, the Johns Hopkins dashboard was a really good place to get information because they they are really good researchers and uh, experts in numerous medical fields, if not all the medical fields. But here here it is as of March 10th when they stopped collecting the data. 676,609,955 total COVID cases around the globe. That's... I'm trying to do the math in my head now, which is probably a bad idea, but I mean, come on, that's like one out of every 10 people, one out of every 12 people on Earth have had COVID. 6,881,955 deaths. So almost 7 million people in the world have died of COVID-19. We don't really talk about that, do we? We don't really talk about a lot of this stuff anymore, which is why I kind of like gathering these notes here, and maybe you can hear them in my notebook here. I wrote down a bunch of just sort of one-line impressions 
to sort of expand on uh, for the next several minutes because I didn't want to let the occasion go by. And so much has changed in the three years. It felt kind of cheap to rerun an interview I did, you know, with, you know, Maya Goldenberg about vaccine hesitancy, because, you know, one can make the case that we all have vaccine hesitancy now. Uh, nobody's getting their up-to-date COVID shots anymore. Um, that's not necessarily uh, a comment on pe- what people think is effective about the COVID shot. It's just people don't think they need to get it anymore. Uh, COVID misinformation is still out there, of course, but, you know, we're, call- we're kind of all acting like COVID is over, so aren't we all kind of, like, peddling misinformation? No matter, no matter how passively we're kind of doing it, you know, the, the, the virus itself has changed. You know, it, it's gone through several iterations and variants. You know, even the Kraken now seems passe. So th- there's a lot... There's, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot I struggle to understand. And I'm by no means a medical expert on anything. Except, you know, if you get a cut on your hand, you can put a Band-Aid on it and it'll heal. Um, that's that's the extent of my medical knowledge. And I think society's probably all the better for that. So, I'm just going to look down at my notes here. Um, first of all, masks. What have we heard all through the pandemic? That masks are the best, first best, most immediate way of making sure sickness doesn't spread. And we've certainly seen the evidence of that, not just with COVID, but with things like the flu and the common cold and the respiratory viruses and kind of these other seasonal things that come and go. They disappeared for two years. Why? Because everyone was wearing a mask when they interact. I remember a day when I would get on the bus and you could instantly pick out the one person on the bus who wasn't wearing a mask. Now, I'm the one person on the bus wearing the mask. And so you sort of have that feeling. Now you can pick out the one person on the bus wearing the mask. And I am always clue into this when I look around the bus, just, you know, kind of to take in the scene. And I, I spot the one or two other people, if I'm lucky, on the bus who are wearing a mask. Now, that's not... I don't want to say putting any blame on anyone or calling anyone, you know, stupid or lazy or, you know, anything like that. And I think this is another question that strikes me is like, where, where are we at now? Remember back in the day uh, when masking rules went into effect and you would see somebody go into a store and you, there were these videos all over the place of the one maskless person who would go into the store and make a federal case about wearing a mask and the word face diaper was used rather liberally too as a thing it feels almost like that's flipped now and, and maybe you're like me and you see a lot of people you know online on social media talking about like their disappointment and how few people are walking around masks now and and going into um, the stores or the movies or restaurants or wherever and, and just seeing like everybody not wearing a mask like it doesn't matter anymore. And I, I've certainly had that feeling too. I went to the social services committee meeting last week and had that feeling because I was the only person sitting there wearing a mask and it's this cramped little room with like two dozen people in it including like mayors and, and county councilors and, and high-ranking city of Guelph and county of Wellington staff and you know to be the only person in that room wearing a mask and to you know kind of scratch your head and go well how how effective is this for me 
how effective am I being in stopping other people from getting sick? I've had a cold the last week, thanks to my nephew who who caught who picked up a cold somewhere. Um, and that's the other thing that's missing in all of this too. In in the, I feel like we're going all over the place, but that's the way this podcast is going to be. So many people in the desperate rush to get back to normal have forgotten the ones for whom normal doesn't always apply. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, people with disabilities, uh, people who have um, pre-existing conditions that make them sort of the more vulnerable to what for most healthy people would be a perfectly survivable disease. I speak as as a person who had COVID-19. I made it through to the other side. (laughs) But, you know, I worry about my mother, who's 75. She actually had COVID around December, at the beginning of December. And I remember being hugely worried about her ability to um, make it through. Uh, She, like me, like a lot of people, had that cough that took weeks to leave. Um, just the general weariness and tiredness and congestion and and maybe we were lucky uh, maybe it's because they you know the effectiveness of the vaccines she was at the time had uh, her three doses um, the first three doses she had not gotten a, a, a booster um, the perhaps the variant of the virus she got wasn't as potent and and perhaps the 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 symptoms such as they were were not as strong but what if we weren't that lucky and i mean what if you know one thing kind of went in her medical history kind of went wrong and you know that's in the back of my head a lot is that there are a lot of people who have varying different medical histories varying different vulnerabilities and we just can't do this one thing, which is put on a mask. And I, you know, I've been to these COVID-19 anti-mandate, anti-masking demonstrations and seeing these people going, who, who, again, face diaper. It's like, masks don't work. It's like, well, no, masks do work. And it, it, it always seems to come down to a level of comfort with those people. It's like, I can't breathe right. Well... Yeah, you have something over your face that doesn't exactly make breathing fun. And if you wear glasses like me, especially in the wintertime, going inside and outside constantly and, and, you know, dealing with the fog up. Yeah, it's not a lot of fun. Wearing masks was never fun in the winter, in the summer. I think you get like a sweet spot about like three months on either side where wearing a mask doesn't, you know, if you, again, if you're a glasses wearer, especially wearing a mask isn't... Um, isn't a big deal as situationally wise speaking i also think a lot about and this is still in my mind even though it happened in december when dr kieran moore the chief medical officer of health for ontario came out and said everybody should wear a mask you know it's december cases are going up people are inside we're socializing um so you should wear your mask, keep physical distance. And then like no less than three days later, he's at a Christmas party, a public Christmas party uh, hosted by Toronto Life magazine. And there's a video of him in the crowd, no mask. And you just think to yourself, well, if this guy, the medical officer of health can't take his advice seriously, why should I? And there was a comment from 
Public Health Ontario a little bit after that, where Dr. Moore judged his um, judged his uh, risk uh, in the situation and, and judged himself to uh, be under an acceptable risk. And it's like, well, dude, that's what a lot of the anti-mask people were saying. Like, I want to take the risk to live mask-free and uh, vaccine-free. And it was never about, like, judge your own risk, you random person with, like, no medical expertise. It was about um, doing what was right as a society to keep the least number of people sick. And this is where I kind of get at this question of, like, did public health screw up by saying, wear a mask till things get back to normal, instead of saying, wear a mask to get back to normal? I know it's it's it seems like a very thin distinction, but I th- I think the, the two are sort of very very different. And I think the other place where we have to ask about where public health kind of screwed up, or maybe not screwed up, but perhaps couldn't get their head around sort of the public response to the situation, is that things change. Um, this again, this was like the first global pandemic in modern times um, when the Spanish flu broke out in 1918. We had no idea what DNA was. We couldn't like gene type sequence and and do all these other things that we do. We developed a vaccine for COVID in about a year. Um, Actually less than a year. It was about a year between when COVID first sort of appeared in China and when the first vaccine started rolling out from Pfizer. So actually, you know, it was like, maybe eight months <laughs> between, you know, COVID-19 being a thing and then getting a vaccine against it. It's remarkable. That's modern technology, uh, modern medicine for you. Uh, and we want to think that modern medicine has all the answers. And of course, when you have people in authority, they want to speak with authority and not make you have doubts. But I really do think that looking back, maybe there should have been that caveat. Like this is a new virus. This is our advice today. We might have better advice for you tomorrow. I do wonder if... I wonder what the reaction would be, I guess, is what, what, how I'm phrasing that. Because I think a lot of this, when advice has changed, has been used as a point of attack by science deniers. And then for lay people and, and people who are you know, not epidemiologists or doctors of any types or zoonic biologists or whatever, you know, scientific nomenclature you want to use, they get confused, you know, and I think that's where a lot of this political polarization has come from, is that, you know, there are a lot of people who are just straight up conspiracy theorists and science deniers, but I think there are a lot of people in the middle, too, who are unsure, um, why are because you know why are people getting worked up about things like COVID mandates if there wasn't something to get you know wound up about? I'm not sure I'm explaining that well, but I'll move on to to some of the other notes I've made here. Well, here's one more note I'll I'll, I'll make about masks. I I think we have sort of allowed them. They shouldn't have been politicized in the first place, but I think our governments have been reticent in reintroducing mask mandates or doing better than quote-unquote strongly encouraging the wearing of masks in the aftermath of the Freedom Convoy. I don't think that 
it's capitulation necessarily to science the, the science deniers and things who were in the convoy, but I think it was two years, more than two years later, and I think people were just kind of like sick of the fuss. Um, just kind of giving up the fight. Uh, even though, again, the science was on the side of, of masking. Um, I, I think that's kind of one of the most disappointing things in, in, in all of this was just, you know, it seems like we've just kind of given up. And to make that point, um, I, I'm re- again referring to the John Ho- Johns Hopkins website. Um, when they last counted weekly cases at the beginning of March, uh, there were about 980,000 and change uh, cases of COVID-19 in the world. And so compared that to June 14th, 2020, there were 895,707 cases of COVID around the world. And then it went up to over a million the, the week after that. These were like cases announced that week. So essentially, you know, we have three years difference. In 2020, <laughs> a million cases was a pretty big deal in a week. Now it's it's kind of no big deal. And to, to, to paint this further, in um, let's see here. In, in March 15th, 2020, there were, hold on, uh, 2,743 deaths from COVID that week. In March 5th, the week of March 5th, 2023, there were 6,481 deaths that week again not to again as medical professionals will tell you covid is an entirely different beast now we have vaccines we know what precautions to take but roughly the same number of people died last week from covid as died when we were all locked down (laughs) when everything was closed and, you know, it, it's it's different because there are probably fewer people dying in Canada as opposed to places in Africa or Southeast Asia and things. We know that vaccine penetration uh, hasn't hit everywhere once. And there are places like China and Russia that have developed their own vaccines that are not as good as the ones that are, are commercially available uh, for free here in Canada, the U.S., and most of Western Europe. But it's weird to just look at the numbers and go, huh. Three years ago, this was a big was a big enough deal to lock down the world, and now it sort of passes by without notice. And it's to the point where this institution doesn't even keep count on a daily basis anymore, let alone an hourly basis. I mean, Johns Hopkins will, of course, still you know collect data, but they they will not collect it every day and every hour as they, as they once did. We see this locally, too. We have not been under 100 cases of COVID-19 since probably fall 2021. I didn't go back week over week over week, which unfortunately I have those records because of uh, producing the weekly Politico tip sheet newsletter. Um, but so far back, so far as I can remember, we have not been under 100 cases since about late fall. Well, probably more like mid-fall, October, November 2021. 
as of last week, unfortunately, I didn't pull up the numbers um, before hitting the record button here. I guess I could pause and call them up, but there are between 100 to 200 cases of COVID in Wellington, Dufferin, Guelph at any given time. And you may not have noticed, a couple of weeks ago, we went past 200 total deaths from COVID since the start of the pandemic. That, combined with the fact that we still have outbreaks in long-term care homes. There's at least four outbreaks in long-term care homes in, in our region right now. That used to be huge news. There were about a dozen COVID outbreaks at Guelph General Hospital alone last year. The, like When this happened, it used to be huge news. It would be breaking news. And now it's just the thing that happens, right? And again, it's, you know, old people, old people are uniquely susceptible, old and sick people, uniquely susceptible to COVID-19. And we just kind of let that pass by without too much, I don't know, concern, worry. Um, We don't want to think about it. COVID's over, right? Even though you may have noticed the exceptional reticence of anyone remotely in any kind of medical or or public health authority willing to say that COVID is over. Even the WHO won't say COVID is over. And I know the WHO has gotten a lot of um, flack and criticism, understandable. But no one wants to call this game over. No one. And the best you seem to be able to do is you have... You know, our own Dr. Nicola Mercer here in Wellington, Dufferin, Guelph, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam at the federal level is like, well, everything's steady. Well, is what they're saying that this is going to be a steady thing from now on? We, we will never get to COVID zero. And you could make the point, well, China tried to get to COVID zero, couldn't do it. China has numerous problems with the way they do business. So I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to touch that. But of course, what we saw happen, as soon as China lifted their COVID zero policies, hundreds of people started getting sick. Hundreds of people started dying. So I wonder just sort of what is going on in the discussions in the realm of public health with all of this. Like, have they abandoned the idea that we can get rid of COVID-19? Have we just adapted that this is going to be a seasonal thing from now on? And... It, it just it seemed to me like back in the early days it was like we gotta get to COVID zero we got to end this and nobody's talking about ending it anymore and I feel like that's maybe an angle of the the discussion on the public health side that is kind of lacking and again that might be largely because nobody wants to talk about COVID anymore so that's kind of getting into the advice section of of these notes that I've made um. And I think I've covered just about a lot of what I've written down here. Uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of address um, is, is kind of like this virtue signaling. And again, maybe you see this a lot in your friend group online and social media and things like that. People who are like, I have been COVID-free for three years and I finally got it because I was on this plane. Rah, 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 rah. Uh, I mean, I understand the frustration. <laughs> I understand like the the pain of losing a streak. Believe me, I I just I I worry that the the kind of the the way we would kind of view 
people who would violently yell about being asked, being politely asked to wear a mask indoors is now kind of coming through the other side. Like, I, I don't want to see, like, mask wearing as a, as a, as a commitment to encourage and increase public health and safety to become another slap fight. I, I hope that's not where this is going. The other thing I kind of am concerned about, and it's something I don't really have a lot of control over, but you know, we've seen in recent weeks that the United States um, Department of Energy came out with like a low certainty evaluation that COVID-19 originated in the Wuhan Bioweapons Lab, which a lot of people who have a vested interest in making the leaders of China look bad go, oh, look, there you go, they did it. Uh, also, a lot of conspiracy theorists, because it's a bioweapons lab, and of course, why wouldn't you want a global pandemic to emerge from a bioweapons lab? It adds to your narrative that, you know, secret puppet masters are pulling strings from behind the scenes, and they unleash this to depopulate the planet, etc., etc., etc. I want to counter with something uh, T. Ryan Gregory from the University of Guelph said, that it, it doesn't matter where COVID came from so much as where it's going and and how we as a public are reacting to it. And I think that's the salient point. We will probably find out at some point where COVID came from. Um, whether it came from the bioweapons lab, or it came from a wet market, whether, you know, an angel sneezed on a on a random Chinese guy in Wuhan and uh, it's God's curse. I don't know. What I do know is that three years ago, this thing changed our world. We're still dealing with that repercussions. We're still dealing with the thing, but we're all acting like it's over. And that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right for me. Um, it doesn't feel right for members of our community who are disabled or that have uh, medical vulnerabilities. Uh, it doesn't feel right for people who have those people in their lives. I talked about my nephew. He's four months old. He, he can't get a COVID vaccine. I don't want him to get COVID and die. And, you know, that's a relatively small chance of that happening. But um, there's also a relatively small chance you'll get hit by a car while crossing the street and we still look both ways that may have been a bad metaphor i mean depending on the street right i mean the hamlin expressway you probably definitely would get hit but you know maybe somewhere on york road at you know three o'clock in the morning probably not anyway the point is <laughs> this is why i should not do podcasts alone but the point is i just Looking around at this three-year mark, I think, and I've mentioned this before, I think we're kind of spoiled by sort of all these narratives, movies, TV shows, books, comics, what have you, where they're about a pandemic, and it, it starts, society falls apart, but someone comes up with a cure and the whole thing stops and it goes back to normal. And this is this is not just like a pandemic disaster movie too, but like disaster movies in general. Something bad happens and then it's over 
and we clean up and get back to normal. That's always been the message. That's always been the story. And I think one of the things that COVID undermined is the belief that we can get back to normal. And by God, have we been trying (laughs) to get back to normal, no matter the consequences. And the consequences are, you know, thousands, a million people a week still getting COVID. Um, Thousands of people every week still dying around the world. So what do we do? And what are we going to do? I think a lot about World War II. Um, not that the, the situations are directly comparable, but God, people had to make sacrifices in World War II in terms of you know rationing, in terms of collecting and, and sorting waste and scrap metal, victory gardens, um, buying war bonds. So much was asked of the general public in World War II in order to win that thing. What would have happened in 1942, that long period between um, Dunkirk and Normandy, where it felt like the war was kind of at a standstill, and I know the war wasn't at a standstill, but in terms of like making progress on the war effort, or at least till 43 when you know, the Allies started retaking Italy, what would happen if people just like, well we're not winning the war. We're just not going to do it anymore. We're not going to try anymore. What's going to happen in the future when fighting climate change and the climate disaster keeps getting harder? Yeah, I know that, you know, Nana's house along the river got flooded out, but geez, you want me to give up my car? You want me to make the switch to biodiesel? You want me to eat less meat? I mean, we see that in the United States right now, and and different. Heck, we see it in Canada too. Let's just be honest. You know, when a report comes out and says, like, "Hey, our farming practices are horrendously contributing to the climate crisis. Just how many cows we have to have walking around to feed our obsessive desire for hamburgers and steaks." People go nuts. They go berserk. It's like you. It's like you're telling them they have to take one of their three kids and, um get rid of them uh, in order to save the planet. We just continue to show ourselves unwilling to be even moderately inconvenienced in order to make positive public health change. Wearing a mask. Getting your shots. Right now, only about a quarter of the people in Guelph are up to date on their vaccines. And I know it's a pain in the butt to make an appointment and go in and the last time I got I got the bivalent booster last fall um but you know kind of put me to sleep for a day <laughs> right in the middle of the municipal election not great but seems like a small ass to you know keep myself healthy to keep others healthy I don't know I just it, it's it's hard it's hard to think we're just kind of giving up. That, you know, we're just going to, like, go around and, you know, a couple of more people are going to die from this easily preventable thing every week. And, and of course, we're not even, like, really getting accurate numbers on the total case count either because we're not testing like we should. If you don't go down to the assessment center, which is now the COVID and flu assessment center, because they were, I guess they were probably going to get more business of the latter than the former these days. But unless you're going to some official place to get that test, 
the count that that, does, that doesn't go to the counts that you see on the, the the public health dashboard. If you take a picture of your positive test and post it on Twitter, there's nobody at public health sitting there scanning that and then putting a check mark in a box. So the pic, you know, the picture isn't the picture. I guess to to put that indelicately, we have no real idea how serious COVID is still a problem, and we have no real desire to treat it seriously as a problem. And those are two solvable problems we seem unwilling to solve. So, um, I'm going to leave that there. I've (laughs) I've talked about as much as I've wanted to for this. I think I've hit all my points. As luck would have it, uh, Dr. Nicola Mercer is going to be the guest on this week's Open Sources on Thursday. And as I'm sitting here recording this, I'm thinking about what to ask her uh, when we record that interview later this week. And I'm probably going to put some of these questions to her. I mean, policy is not necessarily her it's part of her job. It's not the biggest part of her job. And she's the medical officer of health, but she doesn't set policy at you know, even the local level, forget the provincial level, but just so you're aware, these <laughs> these meandering uh, insights will be collected in the form of questions that will be put to an actual public health professional sometime this week. So tune in on Thursday at 5 p.m. on CFRU for Open Sources Guelph in our interview with Dr. Nicola Mercer, which will be in the second half of the show around the 5.30 part of the hour. As for this edition of the Guelph Politicast, you can consider it concluded. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram. And you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can certainly do that and get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week, hopefully with someone in addition to myself. But until then, we will see you next time. (laughs) 